Now, if you weren't with us last weekend, we did something really fun as a church family. We gathered both of our campuses together to celebrate our 20-year anniversary as a church family. And if you weren't there, I just want you to know we missed you. We really did. I'm sorry that you missed out on. It was was an amazing celebration of all that God has done in our church. And as you can see, we had a packed room of like 700 people. And I want to say this. The planning team, the team that planned this, they did such an excellent job. I was not on that team, which is probably why it went so well, but they did a phenomenal job of planning it. But I also wanna say thanks to so many of you because you guys showed up ready to celebrate. I could hear you singing better than I could hear the band on stage. And I just want you to know, we don't have to wait for a 20-year celebration for that to be the case, okay? You can come and worship Jesus without it being a special celebration. Every Sunday that we gather together is a special celebration. But as you can see, we had a packed room. We had a photo booth uh, where families could come and take their picture together. We had fun and games. We had one problem throughout the whole day. This guy kept photobombing all the family pictures. Now... (laughs) We have talked to the police. We have a restraining order against him. You should not see him anymore. If you do, report him to Officer Rob. We will get him out of here immediately. In all seriousness, it was a wonderful day of celebration for our church family. And I have enjoyed talking to so many of you that have said, oh, it was wonderful. But here's the thing. Our 20-year existence as a church, as great as it has been, is just a small sliver of what God has been doing through the church for the last 2,000 years. It is a small representation of this movement that Jesus started 2,000 years ago that's recorded for us in the book of Acts. And as Dan said, we're jumping back into our chapter-by-chapter study of the book of Acts. And I I hope that you can enjoy and appreciate the gift of God's church to us. So if you have a Bible, I wanna invite you to turn to Acts chapter 17. That's where we're gonna be today. Um, on the way out the door, there's a table set up right by, the, uh, right by the door. We have bookmarks and reading plans. If you want to follow along with us, you can follow along chapter by chapter. And we've added some of Paul's writings that coincide with what we're reading in the book of Acts. So last week we read about the church in Philippi, and then you can read the book of Philippians, and you can kind of see how those things coincide. So be sure to pick one of those up on the way out the door. If you're not familiar with the book of Acts, here's what you need to know. It's kind of like a sequel to Jesus's life that's recorded in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, okay? It's just a continuation, but it's also, the book of Acts is a history book for us. It tells us how the early church was formed, how it functioned, and how it grew as the Holy Spirit began to live in the hearts of everyday people, just like me and you. And those people began to share their faith in Jerusalem, and the message of the gospel and the movement of the church began to expand beyond the walls of Jerusalem, to the regions of Judea and Samaria. And then last week we learned in the book of Acts, I'm I'm sorry, Acts 16, the apostle Paul got together a small group of missionaries and they launched out from the city of Antioch. They traveled around the Mediterranean Rim. They made their way to the city of Philippi where they shared the message of the gospel. They took the message of the movement of the church with them. They were beaten, they were arrested, and they planted a church in the process. Okay, so we're starting to see the message of the gospel literally go to the ends of the earth. Now, here's a map for those of you that like geography. This is kind of on the far side of the Mediterranean Sea. Um, Israel and Antioch would be kind of way off in that direction on the map, but you can see here's where we're going the ground we're going to cover today. They left Philippi in Acts 16 and Acts 17. All those places, all those little dots are places that are literally mentioned in Acts chapter 17. And I heard someone say recently, this is only part of Paul's journey. In a three-year period, the Apostle Paul traveled on foot over 2,000 miles 
over a thousand miles by boat. And guys, he didn't have a plane. He didn't have Uber or Lime scooters to help him out. I mean, he was just, they were just kind of plodding along day by day. Can you imagine in a three-year period covering all of that? And he wasn't on vacation. He wasn't taking in the sights and the sounds. He was spreading the message of the gospel and bringing the movement of the church to all of these new cities. Now, what we're gonna see in Acts chapter 17 is he starts in the city of Thessalonica. He goes to Berea. And we're gonna spend the majority of our time today talking about his trip to Athens, Greece. But before we get to Athens, I wanna show you a pattern that begins to emerge. And I, I dare say you're gonna see this pattern repeat every chapter from this point forward. So here's what happens. He, they show up in the city of Thessalonica. They go immediately to, Paul and his friends go to the synagogue. A synagogue was the place where Jews would gather, but there were also God-fearing Greeks that would show up. So they go to a synagogue, they start spiritual conversations. Paul begins to share his faith in who Jesus is. People would come to faith at these synagogues, but then in Thessalonica, the, the, the Jews that didn't like what was happening went and got a group of thugs to come and chase Paul out of town. So he goes and he starts another church in Thessalonica. This is where we get the books of First and Second Thessalonians. They chase him out of town. He runs over to the town of Berea and he does the same thing. He goes to the synagogue. He starts spiritual conversations. He shares his faith in Jesus. He shares the message of the gospel. People come to believe in, in Jesus. And that same group of thugs from Thessalonica, they came and they chased Paul out of the city of Berea. He's on the run for his life. Now, here's a question. Have you ever had a period of your life or have you ever experienced in your life a time when you knew you were doing all the right things for all the right reasons, you had the right motives, you even had, your work was being, it was fruitful. You could see that it was working, but there was a group of people that was always in opposition to you. I mean, if you said black, they said white. They're always gonna fight against you. They're always gonna undercut you. If you're a parent, you've experienced this, Right? those little minions that you love so much, you want, you're trying your best and they're just like, no, we're not gonna do it that way. We're gonna do it this way, right? This is true for missionaries. It's true for parents. But what we see throughout scripture is that that kind of opposition is what happens when we live in a fallen world. Our sinful nature, we just wanna fight against one another and what we know is good and best. But here's a lesson that we can learn from the apostle Paul and all of his journeys in the book of Acts. We should always expect opposition when we live on mission for Jesus. If you are living on mission for Jesus, you should expect life to be hard. I mean, it was hard for him, it's gonna be hard for us. If we partner with him in this disciple-making mission that he has given for us, you should just anticipate people not liking the message that you're bringing. You should expect people to say, that's not true, that's not right, that's not good. Now, does that mean that you stop? No, it doesn't mean you stop. It means you keep going because there's power in the name of Jesus. There's power in the message of the gospel. There's power in the movement of the church for the sake of Jesus. And over the last 20 years in the history of our church family, we've had some really high highs and we've had some really low lows. But I want you to imagine <clears throat> what would happen? What would have happened? if it one of the low experiences in our church family, if our leaders and our elders and our staff team and our congregation had said, this is hard, we're done. Like we, we've tried our best. I think it's time to just hang it up and move on. That'd be really sad, wouldn't it? But personally, I'm thankful for our elders and our leaders, for our staff team, for our church family as a whole, that's not just committed to weathering the storms and the oppositions that come our way, but we continue to look to the future with excitement. Because we believe, yeah, it's great that we've got 20 years of history behind us, 
But I believe our best days are ahead because that's the God that we serve. Just because it's been great doesn't mean we're done. We are excited about what he is gonna do next. But in order for him to do something big and powerful, it has to be all about him. It can't be about us. We have to stay united to the thing that we believe to be true. The most important thing, Jesus is our king. He has come and he will come again. And if we're, if we're united on that and we're committed to serving one another and loving one another well and living out the message of the gospel, there is no telling what he could do. In fact, I believe what he wants to do is far greater than anything that you and I could ask or imagine. But here's the thing, in all of that, we have to anticipate opposition and never stop moving forward for the cause of Christ. This is what we see in Paul's life. In Acts 6, 16, he's arrested, he's beaten, and he plants a church and he moves on to the next city. In Acts 17, he goes to Thessalonica, shares the gospel, chased out of town. Goes to Berea, shares the gospel, chased out of town, making believers all along the way. And you would think at some point, the apostle Paul would like pump the brakes and be like, I can't be doing this right. Like there's gotta be a better, more fruitful way to do this. But he never let the opposition slow him down. Look at Acts chapter 17, verse 15. Those who escorted Paul out of Berea brought him to Athens and then they left with instructions from Paul for Silas and Timothy, his traveling companions, to join him as soon as possible. So what we see is that Paul finds himself in a brand new city all by himself. And so what's he gonna do? Well, he's gonna continue on with the journey. Now he finds himself in Athens, Greece. I've never been, I wanna go, but just in case you've never been, Athens is a beautiful city. It was beautiful then, it's beautiful now, as you can see. And not only was Athens at one point in time a political center for Greece, it's also known for being the home of several people that have influenced Western culture. So Herodotus is known as the father of history. He's from Athens. Hippocrates, the father of Western medicine from Athens. And of course, you've got Socrates, the father of Western philosophy, who went on to mentor both Plato, Plato and Aristotle from Athens, Greece. I mean, this is a beautiful city. It's a powerful city. It's an influential city. It's got this history of just producing people that are gonna change culture. And you would have thought that Paul would have arrived and been really like overwhelmed and taking it all in and like, wow. But actually his first impression of Athens was not very good. Look at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for his friends in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he arrives at this beautiful, prestigious city and he discovers it has been overrun with religious shrines and temples and statues that lined the streets. That phrase full of idols actually can be translated as smothered in idols. In fact, there, was, there were so many idols that an ancient geographer later made this claim. He said, it's easier to meet a god or a goddess on the main street of Athens than it is to meet an actual person. And you might think, well, that sounds really dramatic. Okay, when Paul visited Athens, it had a population of 10,000 people. And when Paul visited Athens, it boasted having over 30,000 statues and shrines to gods and goddesses. Now, you don't have to be a mathlete to know that is three statues per the one person that lives in that city. Three statues or shrines. So literally it was smothered in idols. 
This summer, I've told you this, our family went to the mountains of Tennessee and our older boys had been, but our younger two had not been. And I was excited for them to see the mountains, but I was also excited to see what they thought when we pulled into Pigeon Forge in Gatlinburg. It's like hillbilly Las Vegas, right? I mean, it's like everything you could imagine. And so we're, we're pulling in, driving up the strip to Pigeon Forge and I'm looking off at the mountains, but I forget my daughter She's never seen all the stuff that you drive past. And she was like, whoa, that's the Titanic. That house is upside down. Look at that dinosaur. And then she says this, I had no idea that this is what the mountains were like. And I'm like, oh, sweetheart, this is just, this is Hillbilly Vegas. That's all this is, right? Same thing we went through the, through the downtown of Gatlinburg. She was like, what in the world, right? She wasn't prepared for what she was about to see. We've all had an experience like that. I think this is, what Paul's hap- this is what's happening to Paul in Athens. In spite of its stunning beauty and its rich history over time, the people of Athens had given themselves over to a powerful cultural paganism that was fueled by idolatry and popular philosophy. Now, I wanna be clear, when we say an idol, we're not just talking about a statue in a shrine that people worship. When we talk about an idol, we're talking about a substitute God or a goddess. Something that you look to and pray to in worship in hopes that it is going to give you fulfillment, it is gonna give you joy, it is gonna give you purpose in life. The apostle Paul later in his writings in the New Testament says there's a demon at work behind every idol that you worship that's not the God of the universe. So we're not just talking about statues, we're talking about a powerful spiritual battle playing out on the streets of Athens. This is why Paul was so greatly distressed. He is in a city with people that are desperately looking for God, but they are looking in all the wrong places. They don't know where to look, but let's stop and ask a question. Why would this bother Paul so much? I mean, Paul's a smart guy, he had traveled. He knows that there are people that don't know Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. So why would this break his heart? Why would he be like, oh, this is, this is bad. This is wrong. We got to do something about this. Now, if you look at this from a couple of different perspectives, you can assume some things. Maybe he was starting to have like a victim's mentality. He's being chased from place to place. And he's like, nobody likes me because of what I believe. I'm just a victim. And everybody else is mean and bad and wrong. He had a victim's mentality. Maybe. Or maybe if you're looking at it from an outsider's perspective, you could say, well, I think he's just being an arrogant bigot. He refused to see things from other people's perspective. But really, I think the reason that Paul was heartbroken was because now he's a follower of Jesus. He has met Jesus personally, which meant his perspective on life was changed. He had a Christian perspective and he brought it with him everywhere he went. Now, when I say the word Christian, when I say Christian perspective, I hesitate to use that word because when we use the word Christian, we think of Christian coffee shops and Christian radio and Christian media. And thanks to Chick-fil-A Christian chicken, which is superior. It's superior in every way. There's no doubt about it. And none of those things are bad or wrong, but the word Christian is so overused. When I say Christian, I'm not talking about a cute phrase that you can say that makes you sound really spiritual. And I'm not talking about a song that you're gonna listen to on the radio that makes you feel like the best version of you. When I say a Christian perspective, we're talking about a worldview that shapes the way that you and I see and interact and live in the world all around us. Ed Stetzer defines a worldview as a set of fundamental beliefs that inform the way we see and engage the world. Now, every single one of us have a worldview. You have a way that you see the world. 
Okay, I have one, you have one, everybody has one and they compete with one another. They clash against one another. Let me give you an example. You've probably seen this before. How many of you remember the picture of this dress that was posted online in February of 2015? The big debate, is it black and blue or is it gold and white? Now just by show of hands, how many of you see a black and blue dress? Oh, really? How many of you see gold and white? I can only see gold and white. Like I'm like, how do you see black and blue? Now, if you don't believe me, yeah, you're like, what is he talking about? Google it. If you see it in different shades, it's different colors. On the day this was posted online in February 26th of 2015, 10 million people, 10 million people like started commenting on what they see and why. And they're like, no, you're wrong. No, I'm right. That's a worldview. Everybody has one. Everybody sees it differently. And so here's what's happening in Acts chapter 17. The apostle Paul brings his Christian worldview to what he's experiencing in the city of Athens. Now, a Christian worldview, just to be clear, is, is centered on seeing and experiencing and approaching the world from a biblical perspective, a biblical perspective. Not your perspective, a bit what God says is true about the world, about who God is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in God's role as the creator of the universe and how God views humanity, not how you and I view humanity and gender and all the things, how God views it, how God defines and deals with the matter of sin and redemption and the imminent return of his son, Jesus, as the eternal king of kings. That's a Christian perspective. And Paul's Christian worldview led him to be heartbroken about what he found in Athens because he's in this city that these people aren't just far from God. They are so disoriented. They don't even know what to think about God. And so look at Paul's response, verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogues. He did the same thing he did in Thessalonica and Berea. He went to the place where he could start spiritual conversations in a safe way. He went to the synagogues with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace by day with those who happened to be there. Now, this is fascinating. He's in this new city. He's all by himself. He's completely overwhelmed. He's heartbroken but he stuck to the plan. And he didn't just go to the synagogues. He's in a place with a very broad view of God. And so he broadens his approach. He doesn't play it safe. He doesn't just think, let's just get out of here and get to the next city. He actually broadens his approach in the marketplace to reach as many people for Jesus as possible. Look what happens, verse 18. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. And some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Now, don't miss this. Paul doesn't shy away from what he believed to be true, even though he was greatly outnumbered and being publicly harassed. He stuck to the message of King Jesus crucified for the sins of mankind and resurrected from the dead with the hope of eternal life for anyone that would put their faith in him. Now, also we learn in verse 18, there's two groups of philosophers that wanted to debate him, the, Ep the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, Epicureans believed that there were lots of gods and goddesses, but they also believed that the gods really didn't care much about humanity. They were very indifferent about anything that you and I would do. And so from an Epicurean worldview, the best way to imitate the gods is to seek pleasure in every way imaginable. So if the Epicureans had a motto, it would be, if it feels good, do it. That's very 2023 of them, isn't it? If it feels good, you do it. Or here's one of my favorites, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. Just 
Take it all in. That's an Epicurean philosophy. Stoics, on the other hand, they were pantheists. They believed that the universe was God, that God was just woven throughout everything in the universe, and they emphasized personal discipline and self-control. And if they had a motto, the Stoic motto would be, stuff happens. It is what it is. So just grin and bear it. Get over it. Go on with life. So you can appreciate the problem in Athens. There's all these philosophers, and they all want to talk about and philosophize on what's right and what's good and their worldviews clash. And now you have the apostle Paul showing up and saying, hey, let me share things from a completely different perspective. Look at what happens. Verse 19. So they took Paul and they brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus. This would be like the city council. Okay. All the city leaders said, hey, we want you to come and, and tell us this teaching that you have. And this is what they said to him. We, uh, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. And then I really like verse 21. It made me smile. All the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. They did not have social media but they had social media. We do this on a screen. Oh, you're wrong. I think you're dumb. They just got together and talked about it in person and argued, okay? So this, this interaction that's taking place here is taking place on a very well-known place called Mars Hill. So if you've ever heard about Paul and his Mars Hill message, this is where this is taking place. And look at what happens, verse 22. Paul stands up in the meeting of the Areopagus, the city council, and says, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. He is a genius. He has been invited to share his worldview. And the first thing he does is pay them a compliment. I can see, it's clear to me that you're very religious. You got statues everywhere. So here's what he's trying to do. He's trying to earn their respect and find common ground so that he can very quickly point them in the direction of Jesus. Look at verse 23. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very things that you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Now, it's easy for us to say when he's saying you're ignorant, he's saying you're dumb, you're foolish. I think he's saying you, by your own admission, admit there are things that you don't know about. I would love to tell you about the God that I serve, this unknown God. Can you see what he's doing? Look at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So he doesn't waste any time. He compliments them. And then he immediately says, let me tell you about this God that you don't know. He is the creator and the sustainer of life. And then in the next verse, he's gonna say, by the way, this unknown God that you don't know that I serve is the ruler of the nations. Look at verse 26. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. So he defines who God is, the creator and the sustainer of life. And then he's gonna go on and explain, by the way, he's not distant. He's not uncaring. He actually wants you to know him. Verse 27, for God did this so that they, so that mankind would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. And then he goes on to describe God as the father of humanity. Look at verse 28. For in him, 
we live and move and have our being. As some of your poets have said, he is going to quote their own literature back to him. As some of your poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are his offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like a gold or silver or stone, an image made by human hands. Paul says, the God that I serve, this unknown God, the creator and sustainer of life is so wonderful. It's offensive to him that you would try to make a statue out of him. He's so much bigger than that. He continues in verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Pay attention to the word repent because now Paul is gonna start hammering in the issue of sin. Repentance means you admit you've sinned against God and you need to turn back to him. Then he says this, for he has set a day when he, God, will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Who's he talking about? He doesn't mention him by name. He's kind of throwing some breadcrumbs there. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Again, he doesn't come out and say Jesus. And you know why? They lived in a culture where you would ask questions. This is how you sparked debate. So Paul very cleverly doesn't mention Jesus. He's saying this unknown God, this is what he's done. He, 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 him, 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 which would lead them to the question of who is he? How do you know him? And Paul can say, I've met him in person. He's the resurrected Jesus. He is building an argument that would be hard for them to push against. <clears throat> now, hit pause. And I just want you to think about what's happened. This is a guy that has been chased out of place to place to place. He's been beaten. He's been arrested. You would think he would stop, but he just keeps going to a new city and doing the same thing over and over again. And he doesn't play it safe. He doesn't tone it down. He doesn't water it down. He simply spells out the core essentials of what he believes to be true. And here's his message to the Athenians. It's real simple. God is the creator and the sustainer and the savior of all life. The unknown God, the God you don't know, this is who he is. And look at how the Athenians respond in verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we wanna hear you again on this subject. Paul knew you cannot share the good news of Jesus without celebrating or sharing his death. Because if Jesus doesn't die, our sins are not paid for. And if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, you and I have no hope of eternal life. You can't talk about your faith in God without talking about the death of his son and his resurrection. Paul knew that. But Paul not only believed these things, he had experienced the resurrected Jesus for himself. And now he wants the Athenians to have that same experience. But unfortunately, the resurrection of Jesus isn't accepted by everybody. That was true in Athens and it's, it's true today. There were people that, were, that sneered in disbelief. Oh, that's ridiculous. But there were some that believed and they invite Paul to come back to share more. Look at what happens, verse 33 and 34. <clears throat> at that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and they believed among them were Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, a member of the city council, and also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. So Luke, the writer of Acts, closes out by telling us that all of Paul's boldness, his broad approach paid off. And you might think, well, there's only two people listed there. Can God not do amazing things with two people in a city full of idols? It's not about how many. 
It's about being faithful and trusting what God can do when we put our faith in motion for Jesus. Okay, so stop. There's no more verses in Acts 17. This is where we stop and say, okay, so what does this have to do with me? How does this apply 2,000 years later? Guys, we don't have to try hard to make some really obvious connections. Paul was in a city that was drowning in idolatry. Anything and everything was a God or a goddess that you would look to and pray to in order to feel better, in order to find meaning and purpose. And I don't know if you've noticed, but the spirit of Athens is doing pretty good in Hamilton County. We live in a world, we don't, we don't have shrines everywhere. We don't, we hide it a little better. But we live in a world that's obsessed with entertainment and youth sports and college sports and professional sports and personal image and sex and money and social status, influence, popularity, fashion. You fill, in, you fill in whatever blank is next. All of those things can become idols. None of them are bad, but they can all be idols that we look to to find fulfillment and to find satisfaction. We trust in those things more than we trust in the hope and the healing that can come from Jesus. And so just like the apostle Paul, when he went into Athens with the message of the gospel, guys, that's what we're called to do. We are called to search our hearts for the idols we're giving ourselves over to. We are called to live in a world, not to say, you're so dumb, you're so foolish. Take Paul's approach and say, hey, can I show you a better way? That is not gonna give you life. Jesus can give you life, but you can't just say it. You have to model it. You have to have a real relationship with him that is, makes other people curious. And I, I wanna be clear on this. When we talk about the message of the gospel, this is how I would verbalize this in my own words. You could pick this apart. But when we talk about sharing the message of the gospel, it is the good news that Jesus has been revealed as God's long-awaited Messiah. He is God in the flesh. He was born as a man. He came to die for the penalty that our sins deserve. He rose from the dead to prove that he has defeated the power of sin and death. He has the power to give us eternal life through faith in him. And he is going to come again one day to judge the living and the dead. That was Paul's message. That's our message. Paul took that message to Philippi, to Thessalonica, to Berea, and guess where you get to take it? To Carmel, to Noblesville, to Westfield, to Zionsville, to Fishers, to Indy, anywhere you go. And look at this. this. This is an outline of how Paul does this in Acts 17. This is how he shares his faith. He just starts at the beginning of creation and says, God created it all. He's the sustainer of life. He's the ruler of everything. He is knowable. He wants to know you, the father of humanity. He's the judge and the rescuer. If you need a template to follow, take a picture of that, apply that, live that out. Just start at creation and build on what you know to be true about Jesus. Model your faith for people. So he's given us a template to follow, but there's another thing that Paul did that all of us can learn from. Paul didn't speak with a tone that was aggressive, that made people feel stupid, and he didn't embarrass himself. He spoke with a tone of love and compassion and mercy and grace. He wanted to relate to people. He got a job as a tent maker so people could see him working among them. So you don't have to show up at work tomorrow and go up to your buddy and say, you're wrong and here's why. Find something that they believe in, find an idol that they serve and pray for God's help to show you how to bring up a conversation about, hey, can I tell you about the unknown God? the God that I serve and let that begin a conversation. 
As we go through the book of Acts, there's a couple things you're gonna notice. You've probably already thought this. Maybe you're thinking every week we just talk about sharing our faith in Jesus. It's what it's about. Spoiler alert, we're gonna talk about it next week in Acts 18. We've got to get better at this, myself included. So this is the pattern that we're following. We have to make this personal. We gotta have the name of Jesus on our lips. We have to model his love with our life and we don't have to do it perfectly. We're sinners, that's the beauty of it. Hey, I screwed this up, but Jesus has redeemed me. He wants to do the same for you. So we're trying to make this as personal as possible. When we rolled this out earlier in the year, we had this everyday prayer, but now we've done something just to make it a little more personal. We've added a blank. If you read through it, I want you to think through who the blank is in your life. Who is the neighbor, the coworker, the family member, the friend that you, like don't dance around it. Don't use the word others. Put their name in there and pray for them and ask for an opportunity to share. Ask for the Holy Spirit's help to be bold. And imagine what could happen if God used your life to affect one or two people and those one or two people affected one or two people. Imagine what we could look like 20 years from now. Imagine what God would wanna do through us. So I'm gonna give you a moment to bow your head. And I just want you to make this, ask for the Holy Spirit to make this as personal as possible for you. And then we're gonna pray and then we're gonna worship. So go ahead, take a moment and pray. Make it personal for yourself. Father, we thank you for this ancient book the letter of Acts, this history book. <clears throat> Would you help us to get past reading it like a fairy tale and to follow it as a blueprint? Would you help us to follow Paul's example? Would you help us to see we are living in Athens? There are idols everywhere in our lives and others' lives. Would you help us to turn to you in obedience and in faith? Would you use us to speak your name, to share your name, to share your love? And would you bring people to you? Would you use us in that way? Not for our glory, but for yours. Would you identify the idols that we are looking to that don't give us life? And would you help us to repent and turn from those things and turn to you, Jesus? Would you help us to find creative ways to start spiritual conversations in the synagogues and in the marketplace and everywhere that we go so that when we get to the end of our life, we can say, I did everything I am in my power by the, with the Holy Spirit's help to teach people about Jesus. Holy Spirit, do something new in us. Help us not to rest on 20 years of history. Help us to look forward to a brighter future where more and more people come to know you through imperfect people like us sharing their faith in you a perfect and personal God. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand and worship with us?